Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we continue our series in the book of Psalms called Prayers of King David. So turn in your Bible to Psalm chapter 14, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, The Folly of the Godless. Secularism is a term that gets used a number of ways. I mean, one way is simply to describe a society or country in which no religion or lack of it gets favored over another. Now, in that system, the role of government is to safeguard everyone's rights regardless of their faith or lack of it. Now, that's believed prevents persecution of any minority by the majority, and and that's good. Secular governments in this definition are not opposed to faith, nor are they necessarily indifferent to it. They may see the great value of those who seek God, but they're determined not to influence one faith over another. The government will never place its finger on the scale favoring one system over another, but it will safeguard the freedom of each person's religion, making sure their rights are protected. But secularism can also be entrenched and made extreme. You know, in this case, the state works to ensure that all religious values are kept from influencing the society. Religious symbols become outlawed. People seeking either political office or those who serve in places of influence, like teachers or lawyers, I mean, you name it, they are made to deny their religious beliefs or to remain silent about them. In time, this way of thinking gradually leads to the oppression of people of faith. The mantra, I mean, you've got no right to force your religious principles on anyone, I mean, that's often either heard or assumed. I mean, never mind the fact that the irreligious, the atheist, the naturalist, and the person who denies God does have the right to force their irreligion on others. You know, in this system, schools, the media, and all public institutions teach and use the force of law to enforce irreligion. And as I've said, in this environment, an environment that's now felt in a great many countries, religious marginalization at the least and downright religious persecution becomes the order of the day. Now, against this background, Psalm 14 presents us with an interesting picture. The psalm is written to reflect the reality of Israel's neighbors, and to be fair, Israel's neighbors were not secular, they were all religious. But the gods and goddesses of their religion denied the reality of the one true creator God in favor of deities that could be easily manipulated to make them say whatever one wanted or in the case of countries around Israel, to form any kind of culture they wanted. The gods in those countries always approved of everything the evil nation did, and that, in essence, made these countries no different than the extreme secular countries of our day. In this system, the prophet of God was either subverted, or when that wasn't possible, the prophet was persecuted. You know, in some ways, that resembles the extreme secularism we see today. Government puts their fingers on the scale and demands that its citizens abandon belief in the one true God. And in each case, it's a description of people who deny the one true God. So let's begin by reading Psalm 14. It's a Psalm of David who's being hard pressed by the enemy nations around him. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, they do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They've all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. 
Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. In order to understand the impact of these words, let's see if we can outline this passage. I see this is happening in four sections. The first section, which is in verse 1, we see people who dismiss the importance of God. The second section, we see God's assessment of people who dismiss his importance. That's in verses 2 and 3. Then the third section in verses 4 to 6, we see those who dismiss the Lord are in great error, or as one commentator has said, they've made a gross miscalculation. And then the fourth and last section, verse 7, we hear the prayer for the consummation of all things at the end of time. This prayer is the same thing that Jesus spoke in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied, but that day is yet to come. So let's take it one step at a time. Section 1. Here's a description of people who dismiss God. Let's read verse 1 again. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Notice the description of those who dismiss God. They are called fools. That description of them, that they're fools, needs some time to unpack. The book of Proverbs, although written after this psalm, but nonetheless unpacks the description of a fool. A fool in Proverbs is not someone who is lacking in intellectual ability. A fool might be very intelligent, even very educated, but nevertheless, he or she is a complete fool. So then, what is a fool? Well, listen to Proverbs 14, verse 16. One who is wise is cautious and turns away from evil, but a fool is reckless and careless. Now, from this passage, we see that the fool is not an intellectual fool, but a moral fool. Fools regard the idea of the law of God as a matter of no concern. They're reckless in the sense that they break the law of God without even a second thought. Now, that sounds very similar to the description of fool that's found in Romans chapter 1. There we read that although they are aware that there is a creator God, for all people are aware of that, but yet they discount the importance of such knowledge and exchange thankfulness to God for his provision in their lives. They exchange that for earthly things, and their entire focus becomes taken up in the creation at the expense of any knowledge of the Creator. Consequently, they become comfortable with lusts, everything from sexual lust to lusting for gains that they can have over others. And the fool has two characteristics. First, the fool is ignorant of the importance of the knowledge of God, ignorant. And second, the fool is arrogant, reckless, incapable of being humble or being corrected or learning or changing. That's a fool. According to Psalm 14, verse 1, the fool says there is no God. Whether they're full-orbed philosophical atheists or whether they are, by all intents and purposes, simply practical atheists, They disavow all knowledge of God, and the language of God no longer occupies their thinking. Now, in my country, Canada, increasingly, because of cultural developments and because of the content of educational training in this land, from kindergarten on up, many young people have never had one thought about God. They've been trained in that fashion. But then, says Psalm 14, verse 1, three things follow. They're corrupt. You know, Genesis 6.11 tells us that the world before the flood was corrupt. And that means that all their dealings were immoral, unethical. 
whenever people acted, be it in politics or in business, they acted not on the basis of ethical guidelines that guided and superintended them. Rather, they acted on the basis of self-interest, and that's what corruption is. Everyone's out for himself or herself. No moral guidance is taught or insisted on. Education in school never includes a class on the law of God or even on the natural law that has been placed into every heart and the necessity to submit to it. Rather, the fool insists on self-interest. The second thing we're told is that they do abominable deeds. Well, that follows. Intellectual amoral beliefs leads to actions that are monstrous, and that leads to a third thing. And there's no one who does good. Well, of course not. The good has not been stressed. Again, we're led to think about the world before the universal flood. There we read that the whole earth had become corrupt, and in David's time, it was the nations that surrounded Israel. They had all become overwhelmingly evil. And the thing about evil is that the nation who does evil almost never defines itself as evil. It defines others as such, but never itself. And that's because they have no external standards to evaluate themselves. Having abandoned God and his law, they use their energy to justify themselves. And nonetheless, evil is defined as that which ignores the laws of God. God the creator, not we the creature, defines what is evil. There is a divine standard. It supersedes human standards. For human standards are changing. In our day, we call it progressive. And with this comes the assumption that every change in moral attitudes were becoming more righteous. But listen, there is no standard of righteousness but only constant change. There can be no way of determining we're progressing or regressing. But God determines those things. And that leads us to the second section of this Psalm, verses two and three. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. They've all turned aside together, they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. And the words, the Lord looks down from heaven, while it seems to echo, you know, very similar words in Genesis 11. That's a text about human effort to build a tower of Babel. You know, the human race said, we're gonna build a tower that reaches up to the gods. And that's fascinating because God had to come down to see this little pimple on the landscape that they called a tower. He came down. This past year, We've seen some groundbreaking advancements in terms of Back to the Bible Canada's international initiatives. This July, in partnership with Back to the Bible India and Sri Lanka, Bible teaching conferences were held with over 750 international church leaders and pastors attending collectively. One pastor wrote, Today I heard the wonderful guidance and teaching of the Word of God through Dr. John Newfeld. I praise the Lord for being given the opportunity to attend this conference. What a blessing. We're so humbled at the ways God is expanding this ministry on a global scale. So if you have a heart to see God's word sown around the world, then we invite you to consider donating towards our international efforts. You can do so at backtothebible.ca slash international or just call us at 1-800-663-2425. In Psalm 14, verse 2, the Lord doesn't look up at the human experiment to build life without him. He looks down. See, he's holy. He's exalted. We're not. 
Evil civilizations exalt themselves. Righteous ones exalt God. But as God looks down, what's he looking for? And the answer is, he's looking down to see if in this secular society, this society free from God, if there are any who understand the knowledge of the divine or even seek to have some knowledge of the divine, what does this downward-looking God see? Well, Paul quotes those words in Romans 3, 10 to 12. He said, no one is righteous, not even one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. They've together become worthless. No one does good, not even one. In Romans, Paul uses this word as an assessment of the fallen human experience in which all of humanity, once created for God, have now become completely ignorant of him. How we can see why God looks down. Once able to see the divine, humans have fallen so far, their view of him is obscured. I've had an interesting conversation the other day. I was talking to a man who described himself as a Renaissance man. You know, in my presence, he was bragging as if he alone of all the fools on the earth, he knew a little bit about everything. And I decided to test him. Had he heard about Abraham, the man whose faith has shaped the religious experience of one half of the earth's population? He said he'd never heard of him, and I merely smiled. I remember that humans think most highly of their own knowledge, but the one who looks from heaven sees what we truly are. Well, now we started by, you know, the first section of our psalm, seeing that people dismiss the importance of God. And then in the second section, we saw God's assessment of their arrogance and their ignorance. We come now to the third section of the psalm, and this is a complicated section. You see, on the one hand, and this is true, the third section is meant to show what a major miscalculation people are making. What they think to be of no consequence is the most consequential thing of all. See, I'm amazed, at least in my culture here in Canada, how sexualized students are becoming, and at the same time, how attuned they are to social injustice, both perceived injustices and real ones as well. It seems to occupy all their thinking so that the knowledge of God never enters their minds, but they're making a miscalculation. See, the third section of Psalm 14 also tells us that before they become aware of the tragedy of their error, before that comes, they're able to do great damage to the people of God. Now, within the historic context of this poem, David is no doubt thinking about the pagan enemies of Israel. And perhaps he's reflecting on the tragic history of the period of the judges, or perhaps he's thinking about some of the defeats that unrighteous King Saul experienced, or perhaps David's reflecting on his own battles with the nations around him in his time period. Now, because the psalm doesn't tell us the specific time period when David wrote it, we're left to guess about the historical details. But whatever the situation was, the impact of the godless was very real and felt. Look again at verse 4. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? You know, to eat up my people means they consume their wealth and their freedom, at times even killing them. You know, at times in Israel's history, it wasn't foreigners who did this. It was actually fellow Israelites. They're the godless rulers of Israel are said to tear the skin off God's people and to tear the skin from their bones and then not content with that, to break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot. I mean, that, that's an image of just how savage is the attack against God's people, but also an image how lacking in compassion they have become. And that's the point of godlessness. Godlessness is not content to simply ignore God. See, a lack of morals always leads to cruelty against God's people. 
The history of persecution against the church is always preceded by an abandonment of the knowledge of God and an embracing of immorality. Eventually, it leads to wanton cruelty. And when I read these words, I think of my own family history, as well as that of many of the Christians living in Ukraine at the time of the Stalinist purges. Christian people were then targeted. Once because of their industrious farming, these people had made a very good living and were enriched by the sweat of their brow. But overnight, they became enemies of an atheistic state. Even going on to their old land to strip a few heads of grain to feed their starving children, that was seen as a counter-revolutionary activity. People were imprisoned and tortured and put to death. That was done without a twinge of conscience. Entrenched extreme secularism led to that. The uh, Russian writer Dostoevsky said, when there is no God, at least in people's thinking, he said, then all things are possible. And the things that Dostoevsky spoke about that are possible are the immoral actions that would never have been possible when people had the knowledge of God. As much as we might want to pause here and think about the times that the righteous have been persecuted, we do well at this point to remember the wider context. The psalm is less about the suffering of the righteous, but the enormous miscalculation that the godless have made. Look again at verse 5. There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. No, that's not the righteous who are in terror. The godless are. And what's implied in this verse is that there is an end to this matter. And at the end, it's not the triumph of the wicked and the vanquishing of the righteous. No, no, it's the other way around. In the end of the day, God will weigh in and act in justice. He will defend his people, and he will call all godlessness to account. Notice how verse 6 reinforces further what we've already said in verse 5. Verse 6 says, You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. You know, the great miscalculation the wicked make is to assume that there is no day of accounting. It is the miscalculation that God does not remember the damage that they did to the poor. This is the miscalculation the wicked have made. The persecution carried out against the godly, or the slander, or the vilification, or the aggression carried out against God's people. When wicked fools act with recklessness, they do so because they never give thought to the possibility that the God who gives the law is also the God who will judge people according to the law. So even before the day of judgment, God will still be a refuge for the poor. He will also act on behalf of his people. He will assure the wicked will come to nothing. Again, we listen to the words of Revelation chapter 3, verse 9. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Indeed, that's the outcome of the godless. They will have to come and bow before the godly and affirm that God has always favored his people. And with that, we come to the last section of this psalm. This is the prayer of David. It's in verse 7. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Now, let's remember the context. David's hard-pressed by enemies who deny the one true God. He wants salvation to come from Zion. That is, he wants God's promise to be fulfilled. In 2 Samuel 7, David learned that one of his sons would inherit his throne, and from that throne, that son would rule the world. In essence, verse 7 is the prayer for the Messiah to come, to fulfill all God's promises that in the end, the earth would be filled with the glory of the Lord. Now, we know that the Messiah has come, and at his first coming, he has offered mercy to all wicked, 
the free offer made with the sacrifice of his own blood, that is, the free offer from the cross. He offers forgiveness for the wicked and reconciliation with God. But as John the Baptist knew that the Messiah would also come to clean out the threshing floor, to burn the chaff with unquenchable fire, and the plea of David that the salvation would come out of Zion is that the Messiah would rule the world from Jerusalem and break the wicked with a rod of iron. All Christians do pray for that today. And we know that this promise will be fulfilled. The godless may rage for a moment, but their day will last but for a moment. Then the king will come, and he will move us from that moment to the moment of his glorious rule in eternity. And for this reason, the godly, even if they are presently persecuted by the atheistic fools, they are not defeated. Whatever advantage the wicked have is but for a moment. And after that moment, as the Apostle Paul would say, comes the weight of eternity. What fools are those who discount God? In eternity, they will curse and grind their teeth in anger and in agony at their great miscalculation. But the righteous will rejoice in their God. It is wise to say, there is a God, and I bow my knee before him and gladly reverence myself in his presence is the fool who miscalculates greatly and ignores the knowledge of God until he comes to his own ruin. Be wise, reject the ways of the fool. Thanks for your message, John. You know, we've had the privilege and opportunity to travel and meet people from from other countries around the world where conversation about faith is sort of commonplace, it's acceptable, but not here in North America, it would seem. Yeah, until you travel. I mean, if you're a North American, this, you know, obviously what you experience is, seems normal because that's all you've ever experienced. Uh, travel and you begin to recognize that there's something deeply wrong in the Western world. And what's wrong is that it is not natural for us in everyday conversation to speak about God, his dealings in our lives, our necessity that we should be thankful to him and all that kind of stuff. It's just a void. And when you see it in other places, even where there is no knowledge of Christ, there's still this understanding that, that God needs to be thanked in all things. So when you find it absent here, you, you've come to this realization that uh, we have done something remarkably foolish in our culture. Uh, we've done something unnatural, unnatural, I should say, abnormal, uh, all of that kind of stuff. And once we come to recognize that, that talk about God is normal and that it should be encouraged, uh, then we need to become bold in beginning to talk about God in all things. So I think that we can say. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Prayers of King David, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. If you found yourself struggling with your self-esteem, I can assure you, you're certainly not alone. Our self-esteem is fragile. It can blow up with kind words or accomplishments and crumble with failures or criticism. Wouldn't it be a relief to be liberated from the grip of external judgments and even our own self-doubts? Well, Timothy Keller's book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, shows us just that. Keller walks us through how centering our identity in Christ 
can eliminate the noise of opinions and judgments. That's why Back to the Bible Canada is offering this small but powerful booklet for free this month while supplies last. Just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. And don't hesitate because supplies are limited.